Hello and welcome. This is Lesson 11, Grounded in the Gospel. Unit 1, Lessons 1 through 10, Gospel Foundations, spelled out the foundational truths of the gospel. These are the living realities of what it means to be in Christ. Unit 2, Lessons 11 through 20, Gospel Formation, these take up the question that so many of us ask. How do I move these life-changing truths from my head into my heart? If the goal is to become a mature disciple of Jesus, how do I close the gap between who I am and who I want to become, between what I profess to believe and what I experience? In a word, how do people change? Toward the end of his life, David Pallison, one of the most respected counselors in the Christian world, wrote a book, How Does Sanctification Work? Sanctification is the Bible's word for growing in Christ-likeness or holiness. Don't let that word scare you as something impossible or prudish. The best way to understand holiness is to hear in it becoming more and more like Jesus. The big point Pallison makes is that there's no secret or mystery as to how people are changed. He says there is no just when it comes to growing in Christ, as in just remember the gospel or just preach the gospel to yourself each day or just read the Bible. People are complex. How God changes us is as unique and varied as, as we are, as God's particular love for each one of us. So when it comes to the subject of how people change, many want to learn the secret, the hack. And while our change is wholly dependent on God's grace, there is nothing accidental about being formed in Christ. There are no gospel prodigies. Pallison's point is that change is slow and gradual, often painful, always nonlinear. Three steps forward, two steps back. It should be pointed out that change is often resisted because even good change is disruptive. We tend to prefer the familiar. It can be easy to become cynical about whether real, deep, lasting change is even possible. That's why I find the Apostle Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 to be one of the most encouraging prayers in the Bible. He writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, together with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This prayer for the church at Ephesus is so well-known and well-loved that it can be easy to miss what's unusual about it. Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and yet the letter, chapter 1, verse 1, is addressed to those who already know Christ. Elsewhere, Paul makes it clear that a follower of Jesus is, by definition, one in whom Christ dwells. So why would he then ask for Christ to dwell in their hearts? Why does Paul pray for what must already be true? 
Well, Ephesians 3 is a prayer for what the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once called experiential knowledge. Apparently, it's one thing to know the truth, but it's another thing to know in the biblical sense of the word, for that truth to take root in your heart. Paul's prayer acknowledges that there is a gap between the inheritance we've already been given and our present experience of how we see ourselves. Filled with the fullness of God? Really? This is a prayer for that gap to be closed, that we may know the riches of our inheritance, that we may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is no small request. Paul does pray for strength and power to comprehend it after all, but nevertheless, he prays not for the super saints, but Paul prays for you and me, that we might know the love of God in all of its unfathomable dimensions. Here's a prayer that we might experience more deeply what we already profess to believe. Imagine you inherited a bank account with $100 million in it, bequeathed to you by someone who loved you dearly. You're aware of this treasure. You're given deposit <clears throat> slips guaranteeing your inheritance. You receive weekly statements reminding you of your substantial wealth, that is, you go to church. But suppose you never draw down on this fortune. You remain in poverty, living paycheck to paycheck. Imagine that you went out begging for your daily bread, living like an orphan. From one point of view, you're exceedingly wealthy, but insofar as how you live, you remain poor. In one sense, you know you're wealthy beyond imagining, but you don't really know your wealth. If your reluctance to draw down on this inheritance were born of modesty, it might be commendable, but perhaps it stems from a refusal to accept such a lavish gift. Oh no, I don't deserve anything like this. Or maybe it stems from a fear, a reluctance to even begin to imagine how much your life could change. I'll just remain the way I've always been. Does this not describe the way so many of us are living? It's like living in a trailer while underneath the land you own courses millions of dollars worth of oil, untapped. All this time there have been untold riches right under our noses, but most of us keep on living the familiar life we've always known. Even if we aren't particularly happy with it, at least it's familiar. The children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, you might remember that at one point they yearned to return to Egypt. They actually preferred returning to slavery. See Numbers 11 verse 5. Because the promised land was unknown and terrifying. Because of the gospel, we need not labor under the fear that we must get our lives cleaned up or all together before our Father will embrace us. Life with the Father begins in His embrace. That was lesson one. We begin and we end here. And we always keep coming back to this, going deeper and deeper into the Father's unimaginable love. Rooted and grounded. This is the image Paul uses in Ephesians 3. His prayer is for us to be rooted and grounded in God's love. Change is multifaceted, but you could say it always comes back to being rooted and grounded in God's goodness and love for us. We can't change ourselves. That is true. Martin Luther once wrote, Man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive 
the grace of Christ. The Bible says that our hearts are full of evil. One of the dangers of indwelling sin is that we constantly underestimate sin's power in our lives. Luther is saying, paradoxically, that the only sure foundation for our growth in Christ is the solid ground of our own self-despair, despairing of our own ability. He's saying a wise person has learned to say, I can't, but God can. I think I'll let him. In Christ, we have already been given every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1.3 Christ's work is finished. We can't add to it. We only go deeper into it. So friend, begin this journey by resting. Rest in Christ alone as He's offered to you in the gospel. Rest in the sure and certain confidence that your sins have been forgiven and nothing can separate you from God's love. One author put it, we grow in Christ no further than we enjoy His embrace of us. That's what Paul is praying for in Ephesians 3, that we might come to know the unknowable love of Christ. He prays that we would be given power, but power for what? To perform miracles? To love our neighbors? To witness? There's a place for all those. But first, Paul prays for power for us to know how much Jesus loves us. He makes clear we could never overstate the wonder of God's love. Jonathan Edwards said that. He wrote, God is an infinite ocean of love without shore or bottom. And again, Paul is writing this to the church, praying that what was once two-dimensional and black and white might become 3D and technicolor in our lives. I'm dwelling on this theme of being rooted and grounded in God's love because this is a theme with which we must return again and again. For our unwillingness to believe that God, His good, has been mankind's problem from the very beginning. You remember in the Garden of Eden, Satan did not tempt Adam and Eve to doubt God's existence, but rather to question God's goodness. That's one of the best ways of understanding sin, that sin is our unwillingness to believe that what God wants for us is our deepest happiness. Why does a child turn to a parent when she is scared or hurt? Because the child believes my parent loves and cares for me. Now, if you're a parent, think how much it would break your heart if a child hid from you every time she was afraid or hurt because she doubted that you cared. How much more, then, must our reluctance to believe that God is our good Father break God's heart? How much must it break His heart when we run from Him in our shame? It grieves the Father, and it grieves Him because He loves us, His children, so much. One old theologian put it, So much as we see the love of God, so much shall we delight in Him and no more. Every other discovery of God without this will make us run from Him. But if the heart be taken up with the imminency of the Father's love, it cannot choose but to be overpowered, conquered, and endeared unto Him. If the love of the Father will not make a child delight in Him, what will? He's saying that the most devoted, most nurturing love of the most tendering, most tender parent is but a shadow of how much our Heavenly Father loves us. Deeper, deeper, an old hymn puts it, 
in the love of Jesus, daily let me go. We always go back to this soil of being rooted and grounded in God's love. That's step one of the Christian life. Look at Christ. Look at how much God loves you. Look at Christ. Step two of the Christian life, see step one. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. The beauty of Jesus is not only the brilliant contrast to the darkness of our own hearts, but it is also the remedy to dealing with any sin we find in ourselves. That is, we battle sin by filling our hearts with the sweetness of Jesus and all that's in him. Another old Puritan, John Bunyan, put it like this, But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against the light, say you. I have sinned against mercy. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out. Bunyan is saying that the gospel is not simply a gateway into the Christian life. It is the pathway to which we always return, rooted and grounded in God's love. Nike spirituality, just do it, will not work. Our willpower is too weak. Rather, what changes us is the gospel because it tells us what was true of us before we ever thought about changing. See, when it comes to change, we think the lever is our resolve. And there's a place for striving and making every effort. But those exhortations will only be effective when they fall upon hearts that have already received and rested in the verdict of God's finished acceptance of you and me. God has declared you holy in Christ. And now he says, become holy. Become who you are in Christ. That's the ground. This dynamic is vital, and yet so few Christians understand this dynamic. One writer, Richard Lovelace, puts it like this. Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their day-to-day lives. They have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in our day-to-day existence, we rely on our sanctification for our justification. Listen closely. He says, drawing our assurance of acceptance with God from our sincerity, our past experience, or our recent religious performance. Loveless continues, few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon the platform. You are accepted. Looking outward in faith and claiming the righteousness of Christ is our only ground for acceptance. He concludes, much that we have interpreted as a defect of sanctification, you could say as a defect of change, is really an outgrowth of this loss. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts us in Jesus, apart from our present spiritual achievements, 
are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Our insecurity shows itself in pride and a fierce, defensive assertion of our own righteousness. Now that's a mouthful, but let me say it even simpler. He's saying that we all have this broken code, this tendency to want to base our standing before God, our justification on our religious performance, our sanctification, how we're feeling that day or what we've done. His point is that a vital dynamic in our change is always going back to the anchor, rooted and grounded in love, in Christ. This is not a new idea. The writer Dane Ortland gathers together quotes from church history to underscore that many of the great thinkers have underscored the way we move forward in the Christian life is never moving past the truth that forgave us in the first place. Here are some examples. The freer the gospel, the more sanctifying the gospel. And the more it's received as a doctrine of grace, the more it will be felt as a doctrine of godliness. Put another way, here's another quote. It is God's justifying verdict which sanctifies. It is precisely because God waits for no guarantee but pardons out and out. This is the forgiveness that changes us. And here's one more. Real faith is a practical knowledge of the grace that God has revealed in Christ, a heartfelt trust that God has forgiven all of our sins and accepted us as His children. For this reason... Faith is not only needed at the beginning, but it must also accompany the Christian throughout his entire life as a permanent and irreplaceable role in growing in Christ. All these writers are singing versions of the same song. We never graduate from our need to go back to the beginning. We are rooted and grounded in Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul prays for us. He prays for us because he is all too well aware that it's one thing to have an inheritance, but it's another thing to live out of that inheritance so that it changes the substance of our daily lives. Paul isn't praying for Christ to be present with you. Christ already is. He's praying for you to be able to say of yourself, I am one whom God loves deeply and in whom Jesus dwells personally. He's praying that you would know what you know. Well, I want to close with a story because this can feel a little heady. Most of us know the name C.S. Lewis, one of the 20th century's most famous converts, an articulate spokesman for the Christian faith. His books have helped millions. His letters are not as well known, but in his personal correspondence, we can learn much about the man. In one letter, Lewis wrote of the reality of God's goodness toward him and forgiveness of him coming home in a deep, abiding, transformative way. This event happened in 1951. Here's how he wrote of it. During the past year, great joy has befallen me. Difficult though it is, I shall try to explain it in words. It's astonishing that sometimes we believe that we believe what really in our heart we do not believe. For a long time I believed that I believed in the forgiveness of sins, but suddenly this truth appeared in my mind in so clear a light that I perceived that never before had I believed it with my whole heart. So great, Lewis concludes, 
is the difference between mere affirmation by the intellect and that faith fixed in the very marrow, as it were, and palpable, which the Apostle Paul wrote about. Lewis was 53 years old when he wrote this, and we know it felt momentous for him this moment because he refers to it for several years afterwards. In another letter, he refers to this experience as one of revolutionary change, quote, from mere intellectual acceptance to realization of the doctrine that our sins are forgiven. Lewis continues, this is perhaps the most blessed thing that ever happened to me. In 1956, in another letter, Lewis confided, I had assented to this doctrine years earlier and would have said I believed it. But on one blessed day, it suddenly became so real to me that it made what I had previously called belief look absolutely unreal. Now, Lewis had been a Christian for many years. As he writes, he really believed in the forgiveness of sins. Elsewhere, he added, I believed theoretically in the divine forgiveness for years before it ever really came home to me. And it's a wonderful moment when it does. You should know that Lewis wrote these letters and he had this experience after he had written most all of his books. He had told others in this case, millions of others, about the depth of God's love. But it was only later, in his middle 50s, that these precious promises that he himself had been forgiven by God, that this finally settled into Lewis's heart. You could say it took years for the truth of God's love to take root and blossom, rooted and grounded. So friend, take heart if you feel stuck, not feeling God's particular affection for you. How do I change? Well, that's what Unit 2 is all about. But we have to start where we always start, rooted and grounded in God's unfathomable love shown to us in Jesus Christ. Okay, see you next week.